three years ago at the beginning of 2020, we began a study in the book of Deuteronomy here at Cross Connection Church. And we have been rather slowly working our way through this book, the book of Deuteronomy for much of the last three years. Now, because the last three years have been, shall we say, a little bit abnormal, I ventured out of Deuteronomy to cover a, a whole bunch of different topical things that had to do with where we were as a church and as a nation and all the crazy things that we've been going through. But Deuteronomy has been our primary focus. But in our last study in Deuteronomy, back at the end of November, we came to what is effectively the end of Moses's core message in Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is, it is really a prolonged sermon or message for the children of Israel as they were preparing to finally enter into the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And when we began our study in Deuteronomy, I called that series of teachings bordering blessing because that's where Israel was at that point in time. As they were standing before Moses, Moses is the preacher of the book of Deuteronomy, and he is sharing this message with the people of Israel. They are in what is today modern day Jordan, the nation of Jordan, in what we would call at that time the plains of Moab because Moab was the region at that point in time. In fact, Jordan is called the Moabite kingdom of Jordan. And so they're standing in the plains of Moab near what we know of today as the Dead Sea and the southern part of the nation of Israel on the east side of the Jordan River and the land of blessing, the promised land is standing before them on the other side of the river. River. Abraham, the, the father of the nation of Israel, and really we know of him today as the father of all of the monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and then also he's very prominent in Islam as well. Abraham was promised this land for him and his descendants some 400 years prior to Moses standing there with the children of Israel back in the book of Genesis. Deuteronomy is Moses' final words of exhortation to the descendants of Abraham, to the nation of Israel, as they are preparing to come into the promised land. And when we were back in Deuteronomy, before the holiday season, before we stopped going through the book of Deuteronomy and talking about Christmas and New Year sort of stuff, we were finishing up in Deuteronomy chapter 30. So we ended with Deuteronomy chapter 30, and now we come to Deuteronomy chapter 31. And we're going to be making a transition here over the next several weeks as we move out of Deuteronomy and into the books that follow. But Deuteronomy chapter 31 is key because we're introduced to somebody new here in this passage. Open with me in your Bibles if you have them. Deuteronomy chapter 31, beginning at verse 1, we read there. Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. Maybe it was his birthday that day. I don't know. I can no longer go out and come in. So I'm getting kind of old. I can't be leading the nation, all these sorts of things. Also, the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. So Moses knew that he was not going to be coming into the promised land. And there they are at the border of the promised land, getting ready to go in. So verse three, Deuteronomy chapter 31, the Lord, your God himself crosses over before you. He, God, will destroy these nations from before you and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said, and the Lord will do to them, these other kings of this region in the promised land, 
as he did to Sihon and Og, these are other nations or kings that he destroyed previously, the kings of the Amorites and their land, when he destroyed them, the Lord will give them over to you that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them for the Lord your God. He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses called Joshua and he said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and of good courage for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. For the last three years, Moses and the people of Israel, they have been the major characters in our study as we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy. That's who we've been looking at, Moses and the children of Israel. Moses is the great lawgiver and leader of the children of Israel. The man who, by the power and authority of God, delivered these people, the children of Israel, from their enslaved bondage in Egypt and then led them faithfully through the wilderness. For 40 years, they have been going through the wilderness and Moses has been the one who is leading them. And now he is 120 years old and he is preparing to hand the leadership of the nation of Israel over to another. And so what we have here is a character shift. No longer will it be Moses and the children of Israel, but now it is going to be this guy, Joshua, who becomes the focus. But that does beg the question, who is Joshua? And to answer that question, I think that it is helpful to understand a bit more of the larger story that leads up to this point in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Now, for some of you, I recognize you already know this story. Maybe you've read through Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You've read through the Pentateuch, the Torah before. You know this stuff. But I also don't want to take for granted that there are probably some people who don't know the lead up to everything that is going on here as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 31. So to understand who Joshua is, we need to go back a ways. We need to go back to the beginning, back to the very, very beginning, back to the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible and the first chapter of the first book where we read about creation. In Genesis chapter one, beginning at verse one, Hopefully these words are familiar to you, but I recognize they may not be, but there in Genesis 1 verse 1, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And so the evening and the morning were the first day. And then if we skip down in that very same chapter, because Genesis chapter one, it moves from that first day of creation and then it goes through the second, third, fourth, fifth. It goes down to the sixth day of creation. In six days, God created everything that we know and see. Now, there are a lot of different discussions among Christians about exactly how God did that. Did he do it in six literal days? Were these six epochs of time? Was there a gap between the first, you know, creation of the heavens and the earth and all the six days of creation? Did God use the process of what's sometimes referred to as theistic evolution? There's all kinds of questions about that. Not what we're going to be getting into today. We'll talk about that at another time in the future. All I will say at this point is that the 
the Orthodox Christian view, the view that all Christians who are true believers have held for all time is that there is a God and he is creator of all things. And so here we have God creating the universe and the earth and everything that is in the earth. And then we get down to what is referred to as the sixth day of creation. And we read this in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. And those words, us and our are so important. I could spend an hour talking about us and our in verse 26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them, humanity, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him. Note this, male and female, he created them. Again, I could go into all kinds of stuff about those words that we could spend at least one message, if not 20 messages in the reality that God created humanity, male and female. So here in Genesis chapter one, we have the creation spoken about. Genesis chapter two is kind of a restatement of the same events taking place with a little bit different point of view, a little bit more detail, if you will. But we have the creation account in Genesis chapter one and in Genesis chapter two. But then also in addition to the creation in Genesis chapter one, we move from creation to a command. In Genesis chapter two, verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man. So we move from creation, creation to a commandment. The Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we have at the beginning of the book of Genesis chapter one, we have creation and chapter two, the beginning verses of that, again, the creation from a slightly different perspective or point of view. But in Genesis chapter two, verses 15 through 17, we move from creation to the command. God gives humanity a command. He says, you may freely eat of all the trees in the garden, except for one, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And again, if you have been around the story of Genesis, the story of the Bible, you know what is coming in the next chapter in Genesis chapter three, because in Genesis chapter two, God forms female Eve and joins man and woman together as husband and wife. And then in Genesis chapter three, we see the two of them tempted by the serpent who we, we think of as the devil, the enemy, the one who opposes God. He tempts man and woman to eat of the very thing that God had said, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He tells them that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you will be like God knowing good and evil. And they, when they see that it is good for food and that it's, you know, good looking this fruit and it's desirable to make one wise, they take and they eat of it. And as a result, their eyes are open and they know that they are naked and they are separated from God and they're divided from one another. And we have what we refer to as the fall. Corruption by sin comes in through one man, sin enters the world and death through sin and death spreads to all humanity. So the question, why is there malevolence and evil and suffering in the world, whether it is natural evils through the fallenness of creation or it is malevolent evil through people, individuals doing wicked things, for the Christian, we say it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three, corruption came in by sin through the fall. So we have creation 
in chapter 1, in the beginning of chapter 2, and we have the command in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and now we have corruption by the fall, by sin, that comes in and now brings corruption and devastation to creation. All of the creation is under the curse and the stain of sin. But here in this very chapter, as we are confronted with this corruption by sin, not only do we find the corruption by sin, but then we are given this little light shining in the darkness of hope because we have creation in chapter one and we have the command in chapter two and we have corruption in chapter three, but also in chapter three, beginning at verse 15, we have this promise that gives us an idea about a coming redemptive plan from God. It, it may not seem like that when you read it there, but God is speaking to the serpent here in Genesis chapter three, beginning at verse 14, God says to the serpent, the one who tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and to bring about corruption in the fall. God says to the serpent, because you have done this, Genesis chapter three, verse 14, you are cursed more than all of the beasts, all the cattle, more than every beast of the field and on your belly you shall go and you shall eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, verse 15, I will put enmity, God says, between you, the serpent, and the woman and between your seed, what will come from you and her seed, and he, her seed, he shall crush or bruise your head, serpent and you shall crush or bruise his heel. A lot of Christian theologians and scholars and Bible teachers, myself included, see this as the initial, if you will, kind of promotion of God's redemptive plan. Sometimes people refer to this as the proto-euangelion. That means the first gospel. Proto, beginning or first, and euangelion is the Greek word for gospel or good news. So people see this as the initial point at which the gospel is spoken of. So we have creation in Genesis chapter one and two, and we have a commandment given in chapter two. We have corruption by sin leading to the fall in chapter three. And we have here in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, we have the first inkling, if you will, of God speaking about his redemptive plan. And that redemptive plan, as we see as you go through the remainder of the book of Genesis, and some of you have been reading through the book of Genesis if you're doing a reading through the Bible in a year plan. So you're, you're seeing some of these things, you've been going through it. But as you start to see the unfolding of God's redemptive plan in the book of Genesis, you find that the redemptive plan involves a people who we're gonna see are the descendants of an individual named Abram or later on Abraham. So the redemptive plan of God involves a people and it involves a place, a land that God is going to promise to Abraham and his descendants. We find that story as we continue on down in Genesis chapter 12. Skip on down to Genesis chapter 12, verse one. It says in verse one of Genesis 12, now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And note this, this is key. You, Abraham or Abram, shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you or through you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. We refer to this passage in Genesis chapter 12 as the call of Abram or the call of Abraham. This is where God calls out to an individual because if you remember back in Genesis 3 verse 15, God promised that there would come a male child who would descend from a woman who would crush the work of Satan, the serpent, 
And now God is identifying a family, a person. He calls out one named Abram and he says, I want you to follow me. And if you follow me by faith, then I am going to do this spectacular work through you. There will be a blessing for all peoples. This is God's redemptive plan. This is what we would call the redemptive history of God here in this passage. It goes all the way back to Genesis. It goes back to Adam and Eve. It goes back to Abram and others, but these are the key people of the story. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed because God is calling a people to come forth from this man, Abram. So he calls Abram and then he establishes a covenant with this believer. He is the father of our faith, we read in the New Testament. Abraham is the father of all of those who believe. And he trusted God and he followed God by faith, faithfully, even though he screws up from time to time. If you're reading through Genesis, you've seen this, but he stumbles as we all do, but he follows God by faith, faithfully. And so God establishes a covenant with this one that he calls. He calls Abram in Genesis chapter 12. He establishes a covenant with him in Genesis chapter 15, reading from verse 18 in Genesis chapter 15, we read this. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, remember I said that there would be a people and a place. Here's the people, to your descendants, I have given this place, this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. I'm giving you their land. So God says to Abraham, I have called you a single person and to your descendants, your people, I'm going to give this place. Why? Why is God doing this? Why is he calling a person and the people that will descend from him to this place? It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God is bringing about his redemptive plan. He is working his redemptive work for all peoples. In you, Abram, all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. So this whole thing involves a people. It involves a place, a place that we begin to call the promised land. And from Genesis chapter 12 on to the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 50, you have this story that now focuses on Abram, or Abraham and his descendants because God has selected a people and a place to bring about this redemptive plan that would be a blessing for all peoples. Abraham and his descendants, they become the people of the covenant, the people who will receive this promised land. But why? What, what is all of this about? Well, as I've said, God has a redemptive plan that is much bigger than just saving this guy, Abraham and his family. God has a redemptive plan that is for all peoples in all places at all times. In you, Abraham, or through you, all of the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the promise to Abraham there in Genesis chapter three was in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But before God could fulfill his redeeming work for all of the families of the earth, he had to redeem first the descendants of Abraham. And that brings us to the story of the book of Exodus. We move from Genesis to Exodus. So Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. In Genesis, we see the Genesis. Genesis just means the beginning. So in Genesis, we see the beginnings of God's redemptive plan. In Exodus, we see God's redemptive power to work his redemptive mission through another individual, Moses. And we've gotten to know Moses in our studies of Deuteronomy quite a bit over the last several years. But through the book of Exodus, we're introduced to Moses and he is going to be the one 
through whom God is going to bring about this redemptive mission, through whom God is going to exercise his redemptive power. God's redemptive power is here in this mission, in this book, in Exodus. When we finish the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50, Abraham is dead, but Abraham's descendants, they are a relatively large family, and they are now living not in the land that God had promised to Abraham, the land that we call the land of Canaan, or later the land of Israel. Abraham's descendants are not in the land that God has promised to them, but they're down in Egypt. And Abraham's descendants, like I said, they're like a relatively large family in Egypt. But when we begin the book of Exodus, 400 years passes. And Abraham's descendants have gone from being a family of about, you know, under 100 people, about 70 people. They've gone from being this family in Egypt to now being a small nation, really, and actually a very large group of people. And it is a nation within a nation. So the, the descendants of Abraham have grown to hundreds of thousands of people, and they are living in and among the Egyptians. And when we come to the book of Exodus, they are no longer a free people. The children of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, the children of Israel, they are in bondage and they are slaves now in Egypt after four centuries being there. And they are tormented by the king, Pharaoh of Egypt. And Pharaoh, he is fearful that the descendants of Abraham, they are so many that if they wanted to, they could gain power over Egypt from within Egypt. So it's not like we're worried about a force coming against us. Egypt really didn't have that much of a concern about forces coming against them because they had a desert that surrounded them on all sides and they had some pretty good defenses. But now they've got a problem because Pharaoh has this group of people, the Hebrews, the descendants of Abraham, who are in his land and they number in the hundreds of thousands. And so what does Pharaoh do? He gives a command. He gives a decree to try to deal with these people. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, we read, Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Why would Pharaoh do this? Why, why kill only the male children? Why not just destroy all of the Hebrew children? I mean, he certainly had it in his power to be able to do that. But what we find in this is that Pharaoh's aim is to, his goal is to absorb the children of Israel, the people of the Hebrews, into the people of Egypt. And so that's what he's seeking to do. If he gets rid of all of the male children and there's only female children, then those female children will marry Egyptian men and then you can absorb them into your, your land. So that's, that's kind of the thinking of Pharaoh here. If we just get rid of the male children, those who could fight against us and those who could basically have more children and continue the Hebrews, then we won't have someone fighting against us. They won't be able to get rid of us and they'll just be absorbed into our culture. And what is amazing about this wicked thought of Pharaoh is that this is exactly what the enemy often does. He, he doesn't really set out to obliterate. He wants God's people to be just like everybody else. He wants to absorb God's people into his culture. Now, really, that's another study for another day. That has nothing to do with what I'm getting into here today. But I, I, I do want to say that as a result of that, knowing that this is one of the tactics of the enemy as seen in Pharaoh here to kind of absorb you and I as the people of God into this world, we need to take careful note of the New Testament word from the Apostle Paul 
do not be conformed to this world. Just as a passing exhortation, we're not going to get into that today, but just think about that in Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Understand that the enemy thousands of years ago in Egypt, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the mindset of Pharaoh, king of Egypt is the same mindset that is in the world today by the enemy. He wants you to be conformed to this world. That's for another day though. Anyways, we, we have this evil plot. Pharaoh prepares to destroy the people of Israel by destroying the male children. And this sets the conditions for Moses to come about. And not just Moses to come about, but what we might even say the redemption of Moses. And, and this is a key cycle that we're going to see throughout the Old Testament, a cycle that begins at a place of, it begins at a place of relationship and rightness with God, but then through the human actions, often of unfaithfulness and disobedience, rebellion and sin, man descends from being in a place of right relationship with God, man descends down into a place where they are sinful and they end up in bondage. And then in the place of bondage and oppression, the people of God cry out to God because of their oppressors. And God raises up a deliverer to redeem them. So watch for this cycle. We're going to see it a whole bunch as we go through the remainder of the Old Testament passages of Scripture, especially when we get to the book of Judges. We're going to see this a whole bunch. The people of God start out in a place of rightness and relationship with God because of their own sinful actions. They end up in bondage. They cry out to God because of their bondage. And God raises up a deliverer to redeem them and to grab them back. This cycle is constant. Watch for it. It's everywhere throughout the Old Testament, and it points us towards the New Testament, towards Jesus, the Redeemer, the one who is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God, he brings order. That's what God does. God is a God of order, and he brings order. We see that time and time again in the scriptures. Man, in our fallen nature, we... We sow chaos, and boy, have we been seeing the sowing of chaos quite a bit over the last several years. So God brings order, man sows chaos, God redeems man from his disordered chaos and delivers man back to that order. This is what we would call, and I've referred to it before here at Cross Connection, we call this the meta-narrative of the Bible. Creation, fall, then God comes to redeem and ultimately to restore. And we see this cycle, rinse and repeat, all throughout the scriptures. So. Exodus, the children of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, they are in Egypt and they are being oppressed by the wicked Pharaoh who's trying to destroy the people of Israel, destroy God's people. And in Exodus chapter two, Moses is redeemed and rescued from Pharaoh's evil decree. As a, just an infant, Moses' parents, they, they kind of fulfill the decree and command of Pharaoh. Pharaoh said that every male child is to be cast into the river, the Nile. So they kind of follow that, but they they make Moses safe in a little small boat, a little small ark. And by the providential hand of God, Moses is drawn up out of the river, which is interesting because his, his name Moses means one who's drawn up out of the water, if you will. And so by the, the providential hand of God, Moses is drawn up from the river by Pharaoh's daughter. And ultimately, Moses, this little Hebrew child, is adopted into the household of Pharaoh. And that's where Moses remains until he's 40 years old. Now, at 40 years old, as a result of Moses sowing chaos, he ends up, ultimately, after he takes an Egyptian's life, 
he ends up wandering as a shepherd in the wilderness of Midian, many hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the land of Egypt. And he spends the next 40 years of his life out in the wilderness as a shepherd, which is kind of ironic because Hebrew, I'm sorry, Hebrews are originally a group of shepherd people, but the Egyptians hated Hebrews, or they hated shepherds. And Moses was raised up in the household of Pharaoh. And now he ends up as, you know, basically a poor man in the wilderness shepherding sheep for 40 years until he's 80. You know, sometimes we don't think about this, especially if you watch some of the, the adaptations of this in film. I, or I was thinking uh, just the other day and thinking about this, the, one of my favorites is the Prince of Egypt animated one. But when you see Moses, when he meets God, uh, he, he looks like he's like 20. He doesn't look like he's 80. But in reality, the scriptures tell us he's 80, 80 years old. And at 80 years old, God appears to Moses at what we're told in the book of Exodus is Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And God appears to him, and maybe you know this story, in a flame of fire from the midst of a, a bush, a burning bush. And when Moses turns aside to investigate this strange appearance, then we get the call of Moses. Now, remember, we had the call of Abraham Back in Genesis chapter 12, now we have the call of Moses. And all of this is for God's redemptive plan. So Exodus chapter 3, we read this for the call of Mo Moses in verse, verse 4. So when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to look at this burning bush, God called to him from the midst of the bush saying, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not draw near to this place. Take the sandals off your feet for the place on which you stand is holy ground. Moreover, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, Abraham's son, the God of Jacob, Isaac's son. And Moses hid his face, for he was terrified to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good land, a large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, just like God had promised to Abraham hundreds of years ago before in Genesis chapter 15, which we looked at a little bit ago. Now, therefore, verse 9, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come up to me, God says, and I have also seen their oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So remember what I said, this is the redemptive drama of God, that God called out Abraham so that he would bring about his redemptive mission and plan, not just for the people of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, but for all of the world. And now we see this cycle continuing as God is narrowing down for a people and a place from which he is going to bring about this redemptive plan. Now, the next 11 chapters of the book of Exodus, after that call of Moses there in Exodus chapter 3, the next 11 chapters, they chronicle for us God's redemptive mission to rescue the children of Israel, the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to rescue them from the bondage of Egypt. Remember, I said that God called a people to a place to fulfill his redemptive plan to bless all the families of the earth. And this is where that whole story begins to unfold. Moses is sent to the people to get the people out of their bondage by God's power through a series of plagues. Again, you can read the book of Exodus and see the 10 plagues, the frogs and the death of the cattle and all these crazy things, the Nile River being turned into blood, all those plagues, you can see that God is 
systematically, really what's happening there, God is systematically destroying all the things that the people of Egypt worshiped. He's breaking down all the false, false gods because that's what God does. God is greater than all other things that man might find himself worshiping. And so God, when he moves in, he destroys all of those things. So God is redeeming these people by God's power through these series of plagues. He's going to deliver them. And, and once the people are out of Egypt, you continue the story. Exodus chapter 14 is where you can read it. They, they cross over on the Red Sea or cross through the Red Sea on dry ground. And now they are leaving Egypt and they come into the wilderness. And it, it isn't a matter of getting the people out of Egypt. Rather, we now get to a point where it is a matter of getting Egypt out of the people. You see, God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt through this redemptive plan, through his power by Moses, through these 10 plagues. But now as they get into the wilderness and they're, they're no, Egypt is behind them, now God needs to try to get Egypt out of the people. And sometimes it is much easier to get the people out of Egypt than it is to get the Egypt out of the people. And what fascinates me about much of this is how well it pictures what I think is a general principle of life as we go through this life. The general principle is this. At any stage of our lives, we generally find ourselves in one of three places. We generally find ourselves enslaved and bondage in a place like Egypt, wandering aimlessly in a wilderness like we find with the children of Israel in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, or at rest in the land of promise. Now, God's aim is to redeem and to rescue us from bondage and to guide and deliver us through the wilderness and to bring us into a life of victory and rest in his promised land of blessing. So at this point, simple question for you. Where do you find yourself today? Enslaved, wandering, or at rest? It's a question to really think about. Enslaved, wandering, or at rest? At every stage, we're going to see God is trying to work something in his redemptive plan. But for today, right now, you're in one of those three places, enslaved in Egypt, wandering in the wilderness, or at rest in God's promised land of blessing. So the story goes on. God delivers Israel from their bondage in Egypt, and God brings them out of Egypt across the Red Sea, and he takes them into the wilderness to that same mountain where God had appeared to Moses through the burning bush, to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And he's doing that to establish his covenant. Remember, he is calling a people to a place to enter into a covenant so that he can fulfill his redemptive plan. And so at Mount Sinai, God gives the children of Israel his law. And he does this because he's seeking to purify them, to get Egypt out of his people and to prepare them for the promised land. And it is at this early point of their, their time wandering in the wilderness before they really even ever come to Mount Sinai, that we are introduced to this guy, Joshua. That was the question that started me down this whole crazy rabbit hole to get to this point, or rabbit trail to get to this point. Uh, who is Joshua? Because we, we read about him back there in Deuteronomy chapter 31, but who is this guy, Joshua? Well, all of this to get us to this answer. Israel comes through the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. And the waters of the Red Sea, they close and they cover the pursuing Egyptians. The Egyptians had amassed a group of people, an army to go after them. And so 
The children of Israel walk over or across the Red Sea on dry ground. The Egyptians pursue them and the waters of the Red Sea close over and Israel is delivered. They're delivered from Egypt, but now they're in a very real wilderness. And quickly, they begin to realize that the wilderness, it isn't going to be a walk in the park. And at the end of, so Exodus 14, they cross over the Red Sea. They come into the wilderness. Exodus 15, the beginning of it, they have this great worship song where they worship God for delivering them. The end of Exodus chapter 15, the children of Israel have not been in the wilderness for very long, and they are already in a terrible point, big problem. They're dehydrated, and they are in need of fresh water. And so that's the end of Genesis chapter, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 15. They're in need of water. They come to this place called Rephidim, and at the, the place called Rephidim, they, actually not Rephidim, they come to a place that they called Mara, and they found these wells of water, but the water was bitter, and they couldn't drink it because there's something wrong with the water. Maybe it has too much minerals or sulfur or something in the water, so they can't drink it. But Exodus chapter 15, in the end of the story, God provides miraculously making the bitter water sweet. So get the picture. The children of Israel are delivered by God's power. They're redeemed out of Egypt. They cross across the Red Sea. They come into the wilderness. They're dehydrated. They need water. They cry out to God and God provides water for them. Then you come to Exodus chapter 16. The plot thickens. The story gets more challenging because now it's not an issue of water, but now it's an issue of food. They don't have enough food to feed these hundreds of thousands of people that are traveling through the wilderness together. And so they cry out to God for food. And the end of the story, I'm not going to go into every detail of it, but Exodus chapter 16, the end of the story, God miraculously provides and he gives them bread from heaven, what they called manna. And that brings us to Exodus chapter 17, because again, in Exodus chapter 17, this same group of people that were lacking water in chapter 15 are now lacking water again in chapter 17. They're on their way to Mount Sinai to become the people of God, preparing to go to the place that God has for his people to fulfill his redemptive plan. At Sinai, they're going to enter into a covenant with him as God's people, but they're lacking water. They're going to die in the wilderness if they don't get some water. Exodus chapter 17, at the end of that story, God provides miraculously a third time, giving them water from a rock. So what's the common denominator? What common denominator do you recognize there? Israel has a lack and God does what? He miraculously provides. Israel has a lack, God provides. Why? Because he is the redeemer. He is the deliverer. He is the provider. This is exactly what their father Abraham had learned four centuries prior. God calls us out from chaos, from bondage, and he calls us unto the promised land. But in the intervening time, from Egypt to the promised land, in that intervening time between the land of bondage and the land of rest, we wander in a wilderness. And it is there in the wilderness where God wants us to get to know him, to get to know the very one that Abraham called his great word, Jehovah Jireh, which is a, a Hebrew saying or name, Jehovah Jireh, which when translated means the Lord, our provider or the Lord will provide. That is the lesson that God wanted Abraham to learn in the wilderness, that he wanted Israel to learn in the wilderness. And I want to suggest to you that that is the lesson that God wants you to learn as you are moving from the place of bondage on your way to the place of rest 
and you find yourself in a valley like Rephidim, where there's no water. So that's the lesson that God wants us to learn in the wilderness, that he is the provider. And some of you are learning that right now. So Exodus chapter 15, God provides miraculously water for the children of Israel as they are dehydrated and they need water. In Exodus chapter 16, he miraculously provides bread from heaven for them as they are hungry and they need food. Exodus chapter 17, the beginning of the chapter, again, a second time he provides water for them miraculously because God is provider. That's what he wants them to learn in the wilderness, that they can trust in, rely in him, have faith in him. But also in Exodus chapter 17, we read this, and it only took me, goodness, who knows how long, you know, 30 plus minutes to get here. Exodus chapter 17, look at verse 8 if you have your Bible open. Exodus 17, 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, there he is. Who is Joshua? I asked that question like 30 minutes ago. Moses said to Joshua, all of that just to get to this right here. Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow, Moses says, I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. If you've been around Cross Connection Church for any length of time, you know that I, I have a tendency to take a very long path to get to the point. I asked that question, who is Joshua? And now here for the very first time, out of nowhere, seemingly, we are introduced to a new character. And really two new characters. One, the people of Amalek, who will show up more throughout the Old Testament. But more importantly, this man, Joshua. Now at this point, we don't know a lot about Joshua. If you're reading the story, there's just a new guy who plops into the story. You know nothing about him. But the first time that someone is mentioned in a story, I think is important. In fact, those who study the scriptures professionally for a living, they call this the principle of first mention. And so this is the first time that Joshua is mentioned. And I want to suggest to you that his name is vitally, critically, essentially important. Now, just a moment ago, I shared with you that Hebrew name, Jehovah Jireh, which means Jehovah or the Lord is our provider. But now we are introduced to Joshua, which is in Hebrew, Yehoshua, which means Jehovah, just like Jehovah Jireh, God is our provider, Lord is our provider. Yehoshua, Joshua, means Jehovah is salvation. When you are in a wilderness without food or water, you need Jehovah Jireh. You need the Lord, our provider. And when you are facing an enemy, who you are powerless to stand against. You need Jehovah, our salvation. And so Moses says to Yehoshua, Joshua, Jehovah is our salvation. He says, Joshua, choose for us some men to go out and fight. Gather together an army. Now, this is really important. Children of Israel, they have been slaves for four centuries in Egypt. None of them are soldiers. None of them are battle-hardened individuals. God, I'm sorry, Moses says to Joshua, choose for yourself some men to go out and fight with Amalek. And tomorrow, I'm going to stand on the hill over there, on the top of the hill, and I'm going to have the rod of God in my hand. Now, the rod of God was this walking stick or staff that Moses had that was critically important in the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. So he says, I'm going to have the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua 
He does just as Moses tells him to do. And Moses and Aaron, who is Moses' brother, and her, which is a guy we don't have a lot of information about, but we have some more characters in this passage, two associates and helpers of Moses, they go up on top of the hill, and we read this, Exodus chapter 17, verse 11. And so it was when Moses held up his hand with the rod in it, that Israel, they won, they prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so that they took a stone, Aaron and Hur, took a stone and put it under him for a place to sit on, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So, note this, verse 13, so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. This is a fascinating passage of scripture. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture in the book of Exodus. I have like 50 favorite passages in the book of Exodus. For so many reasons, I love the Old Testament stories. I, I love going through the first two thirds of the Bible in the Old Testament. That's why I've been so excited to come to the Old Testament after we spent many, many years, like a decade going through the New Testament. But for so many reasons, I love the stories of the Old Testament. But for one of the key reasons, I love it. And this key reason. Frequently in the Old Testament, we see what I think is a fascinating relationship and an intertwining of God's sovereignty, his sovereign power, and man's responsibility. See, there are these discussions, these endless debates within Christian circles, Protestant Christian circles, between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility or free will. And is God fully sovereign and does man have responsibility and free will? And my answer to that question is yes, these two things are intertwined. And in the Old Testament, we see this very, very clearly. God's sovereign power is at work and it is man's responsibility to take action. Exodus chapter 15 through 17, I just kind of gave a brief overview of them. Read them later and look for this. Israel is without water in chapter 15 until they find a spring with bitter waters and they can't drink it. So God directs Moses, God sovereignly directs Moses to cast a tree into the waters and they are miraculously trained or changed from bitterness to sweet. So we have God's sovereign power, God's miraculous power at work through the agency of Moses. And then Israel chapter 16 was in want of food. They are lacking food until Moses prays and God gives him the plan and God directs him to direct the people, the children of Israel to wake up early in the morning and go out and glean off the ground this strange, miraculous food substance that would be upon the ground, which the people would call manna, which just meant, what is it? The people woke up in the morning and Moses said, all right, God's going to give you bread from heaven. And they go outside and there's all this miraculous food on the ground. And they say, what is it? Manna, 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 what is it? And he says, pick it up. It's for you to eat. God's miraculous power provides sustenance, but the people had to go out and gather the food. So we have God's sovereign power and we have the agency of human beings working together, the co-mingling of these two things. Same thing in chapter 17. Israel is without water and God directs Moses to strike the rock with his staff, the rod of God, and an abundance of water flows out. God miraculously, by his power, he brings about water through the agency and obedience of Moses. And so too here in this passage, the children of Israel are at this place called Rephidim and they are facing an enemy that they are not prepared for. 
As I said before, they have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They are not battle-ready soldiers. But in obedience and faith, Joshua, who ends up being the very first soldier and general in the very first Israeli defense force, Joshua goes out to lead the men of Israel into battle. This is our first introduction with this guy, Joshua, who's going to become the focus of our study. And this is so key to understanding Joshua and his ministry. What's happening here as this general and soldier goes out to lead the men of Israel into battle as Moses and Aaron, Moses' brother and this guy, her, are up on a hill watching the battle. And so it was, when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hands, Amalek prevailed. I can imagine Moses, maybe you can as well. He's up on the hill, he's watching this battle like you're watching a football game. And there they come together, and Joshua's at the front leading the charge against the Amalekites, and they're fighting, and Moses is excited. His hands lift up, and every time he lifts up his hands, he's excited. The children of Israel are pushing back the Amalekites. And then he lets down his hands, and now the Amalekites start to push the children of Israel back. So he lifts up his hands. What's going on? And now the children of Israel. And he realizes every time my hands are up with the rod of God in my hand, the children of Israel are victorious. But have you ever tried to hold your hands up for a very long period of time, especially if you're holding in your hand a stick? Like, go home and pick up a broomstick and hold it above your head and see how long you can hold it here for. Not very long. And so Moses' hands became heavy so that Aaron and her, who were with them to support him, they put a stone on him for him to sit down and they held up his hands all day long so that the children of Israel could be victorious. So, question. Who won the victory against Amalek? Was it Joshua who was fighting in the valley? I mean, could they have won if Joshua wasn't fighting in the valley? I don't know. So was it Joshua who won the valley? In the valley? I guess you could say that. But wasn't Moses essential in this whole scenario as well? Apparently he was. But then weren't Aaron and her, Moses' supporters, weren't they like a necessary component of this victory? So who won the victory? Who wins this victory against Amalek there in the valley at Rephidim. Look at Exodus 17, verse 14. Interesting answer. Then the Lord said to Moses, after the battle is done, write this for a memorial in the book. Now, quick key spot. We'll come back to this in another time, another time in the future, I'm sure. This is the very first time that we find in Scripture where God says, I want you to memorialize this in the book. This is key because we have the book of Scripture. Where did it start? I want to suggest to you that maybe it started right there in Exodus chapter 17. Now, he says the book as if there was already a book, but this is the first time we have it in Scripture. The Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. Note this. This is key. That I, God says, will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. Remember, we have... The Lord, my provider. We have the Lord, my salvation. And now we have a new name. The Lord is my banner. For he said, verse 16, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So who won the victory? So there again, we have the question, who won the victory? And, and answering that question, we're given this third name that I mentioned. We have... Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. We have Yehoshua, the Lord our salvation. And we have Yehovah Nisi, 
the Lord our banner. Who won the victory here in this passage? Ultimately, it was all dependent upon God's divine and sovereign power. Now, there was a place, an essential place, I would suggest, for Moses and Aaron and Hur and Joshua and the army of Israel. We have God's sovereign, mighty power, and we have Joshua, Moses, Aaron, Hur, and the army of Israel joined together. Just like we had God's sovereign, mighty power against the people of Egypt to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, and the children of Israel had to make the decision to follow God by faith into the wilderness. God's sovereign power. God works in us to will and to do his good pleasure as we're working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. All of that to say, let me introduce you to Joshua. He was a former slave there in Egypt, rescued by the redemptive power and deliverance of God. We come to discover later on he was 40 years old when he learns a valuable lesson. A lesson that is going to be core to everything that's going to happen as we continue to get to know Joshua as we move from the book of Deuteronomy into the book of Joshua. The very important lesson that Joshua at 40 years old after being delivered from bondage in Egypt by the mighty power of God as he fights a battle against the Amalekites in this valley called Rephidim, he learns God is my salvation just like my name means. He learns God is my provider. He learns God is the banner over my life. A lesson also that Joshua's father Abraham had learned hundreds of years before. When Abraham encountered enemies in another wilderness, we read about it in Genesis chapter 15. At the beginning of Genesis chapter 15, God reveals to Abraham that he is his provider, that he is his shield, that he is his salvation. He says, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. This is a lesson that one who would come after Joshua, centuries later, one named David, King David of Israel, he would learn when he also had to flee into the wilderness from an enemy within his own household. We read of that in Psalm 3, verse 1. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. I don't have like I normally have here on Sunday morning any blanks for you to fill in on a piece of paper. But I do have some important considerations and some questions for you as we begin to come to the end of this message and as you are beginning to be acquainted with Joshua. Where are you at this moment? Not physically, necessarily. Don't say, oh, I'm sitting in my car, or I'm sitting in my office, or I'm sitting in my living room. That, that's not what I'm talking about. Where are you at this very moment spiritually? Are you bound as a slave in Egypt? Which scripture is often lifts up Egypt as a, a type and a picture of the world? Are you wandering in a wilderness aimlessly? Or are you living a victorious life in the land of rest? Ultimately, Wherever you find yourself today, in bondage in Egypt, walking aimlessly through a wilderness, or experiencing a life of abundance in the promised land, wherever you are, these essential truths about God that Joshua began to learn there as we are first introduced to him in Exodus chapter 17 are important for us.
The Lord our God is our salvation. He's our deliverer. He is our provider, Jehovah Jireh, our protector, our sustainer. Have you learned what Joshua learned there in the earliest days of their exodus from Egypt? God is my salvation. He is my provider. He is the banner over my life. All I want to do here today is to introduce you to Joshua. His name means Jehovah is salvation. And his life, as we're going to discover, it has a lot to teach us as we get to know him and go into the book of Joshua here in a number of weeks. But it's there all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 31, where we left off back at the end of November, that we get this word, Joshua, Joshua, he is the one who's going to bring you into the promised land. So be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of the enemies that stand before you. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you because he is your provider. He is your salvation and he is the banner over your life. Hopefully you know those things. If not, the more we get to know Joshua, the more I hope those things will become clear to you. Father God, I pray that you would stir in us a desire to get into your word, the scriptures, and allow your word to get into us and to transform us by the renewing of our minds so that we would not be conformed to this world. The enemy, just like Pharaoh wanted to do with the children of Israel when they were in Egypt, is just to absorb them into this world. He wants to do the same with us. But God, I pray that you would help us to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we take heart, take heed to your word, and that you would teach us to walk in your will and to trust you as our provider, our salvation, and the banner or shield over our lives. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.